Genesis uh, chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now. And I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, thinking, if Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the company that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. So he spent that night there, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, These he delivered into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the foremost, When Esau my brother meets you, and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. And perhaps we will, he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself spent that night in the camp. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
Then he said, Let me go, for this day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said to Jacob, Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of God. Thank you, Ian. It's an amazing passage. Uh, before we come to it, let's bow our heads and let's pray once more. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I am so grateful uh, for this Advent season. Uh, I am grateful for a time uh, marked out in our year when we simultaneously look back uh, to what you have done, uh, and even as we're waiting, we know that we're waiting for something uh, that is certain because you have done it. And at the same time, we yearn and we long for things to be put right uh, in a world that's full of brokenness. And, and, and just like that which we look back to, the hope that we have in front of us is also certain, just as Beth said just now uh, with the kids up here. Uh, it, is, it is certain. It is a hope uh, that is imperishable. Uh, it is undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept for us in heaven. And I'm thankful for a time in our year uh, that's marked out uh, to remember that, to look back on what you have done, to look ahead uh, to what you will do, uh, to put ourselves in the place uh, of the people of Israel as they waited all those long years uh, for the Messiah to come. Father, I'm grateful for these stories that we've been reading. I'm grateful for uh, these, these long narratives, the art, for the artful way that they're constructed, for the depths of character, that are, that are revealed, um, and above all, for the depths and the riches of your character uh, that shines forth uh, from all these stories as we see you being faithful again and again to meet uh, Jacob, uh, to meet him in the wilderness, to be with him um, as, he, as he travels, as he goes, uh, and finally, uh, to come to him and to engage in the struggle that he needs to engage more than anything else. Father, there are many here in this room that have a struggle that they're in the middle of um, that feels like it won't end. Father, I pray uh, that you would bring comfort. I pray that you would speak through your word, uh, words of hope, uh, words that I can't say uh, on my own authority, uh, but that I don't have to, uh, because I am up here as a minister of your word, of your gospel. Uh, this is your word of hope. And Father, I pray uh, that, um, that your words uh, would pierce our hearts, 
uh, would call us to repent, would call us to turn away uh, from the things that we run after, uh, thinking that they'll satisfy us, um, would also cause us to turn away from our capacity to despair. But Father, that we would turn to you, uh, that our eyes would be turned to heaven, that we would be reminded of your goodness, of how you have been good and are good and will be good again how you have saved us and are saving us and will save us again. Father, we give you thanks uh, that we can sit under your word each week. And I pray as we come to this passage that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it feels like it's all come down to this. Um, this is the great turning point uh, in the life of Jacob. Um, the, the way these stories are, are constructed is just artful. Um, the storyteller is a master uh, of narrative, of, of building tension, right? Um, in this passage, in some way, the plot is pretty simple. Uh, Jacob has left um, Laban. He has left that 20-year interlude in his life um, when he matched wits uh, with, with Laban as they tricked each other and tried to manipulate each other. And he has left a wealthy man, uh, well cared for, um, but he's now turning back towards the promised land. Um, this journey, the journey out was about a month, and the journey back um, is also about a month. And so where it says Jacob went on his way um, at the very beginning of the passage, that covers about a month's worth of travel. And just as in chapter 28, on the way out, Jacob is met by angels. And just like in chapter 28, when he said, this is the house of God, he's able to identify the place and say, this is God's camp, and he names it. And so, in a lot of ways, we're being set up to expect something's going to happen here again. Just as in chapter 28, when he first encountered God, Something big is going to happen here. There's going to be another encounter. But the question we're set up to ask is, what's it going to do to Jacob? Is it going to change him this time? We've, we've said uh, several times uh, over, over the past weeks um, that Jacob, despite all of the promises that he has heard his whole life, has never really been able to rest in those promises. He's never been a man of prayer. Is he finally going to change? and be able to turn towards God. So the plot, again, is pretty simple. He is approaching Esau. We can see that he is worried. He is afraid. Um, he sends servants out ahead of him. They come back and they tell him, your brother is coming. There's some ambiguity even in the word about what does coming mean. Um, but the fact that he's coming with 400 men, um, that can mean one of two things, and one of them is very bad uh, for Jacob. And that's what he's worried about. Um, in desperation, you see him divide his possessions into two camps as if to concede, well, the best I can do if Esau is coming with hostile intent is save half of what God has given me. That's, that's a moment of some pretty significant desperation when you're there, right? He also sends, of course, these gifts on ahead, um, hoping, to, hoping to pacify him. But then there's the encounter. There's the encounter with God. 
which is where the real meat of, of this passage is and which arrests his progress back towards Esau. We'll have to wait until next week to wrap up the conclusion of, of this story for him actually to get to his brother and, and to see what happens. Um, there is so much uh, in this passage. This is an extremely rich uh, text, and so I'm just going to dive right in. Um, I want us to see three things, and it's not, it, it, it just kind of falls out thematically. Um, I want us to see the struggle. This is the big struggle of Jacob's life. But the second thing I want us to see is the blessing. Jacob has received blessings before, uh, and it somehow they've never taken, at least not in his heart. I want us to see the blessing uh, that he receives, and I want to see how he is transformed. Um, transformed to the point that he's renamed in this passage. So we're going to see struggle, we're going to see the blessing, and we're going to see the transformation. Um, when we talk about Jacob struggling, his whole life has been a life of struggle, right? He was named Jacob. It meant heel grabber because as he was born, he was literally grabbing the heel of his brother, his twin brother Esau, as they were born. He was born in the middle of a wrestling match. Right, and his whole life has has just continued to be that way. Uh, again, he heard the promises. Um, he heard from his grandfather, you know, who lived 15 years into his life. He would have heard the promises given to his family. He would have heard those from his father. Specifically pertaining to him, there there was an oracle: the older will serve the younger. He's heard all of those promises, and yet at no point in his, in his life has he been able to fall back on them and rest and trust. Instead, he's always lived by his own wits. He's always manipulated everything. He's always strived to steal the birthright from Esau, to deceive his father, uh, Isaac, uh, into giving him the blessing. And then, and then those 20 years um, working uh, and at times manipulating uh, everything that he could uh, with his uncle Laban. His whole life has been one struggle after another. And in some ways, as he is approaching Esau, he must be thinking to himself, this is the final struggle. This is where the rubber meets the road. But when God comes to him, when God encounters him, he reveals to Jacob, that there's a real struggle in the background. That all this time what Jacob has really been struggling with is not Esau and Isaac and Laban struggling for his life and for his possessions. What he's really been struggling with this whole time is God. He's been struggling. Can he believe these promises? Can he actually believe that he has a father in heaven who's going to take care of him? Can he actually believe the promises that God made when he said, I will be with you. I will bless you. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done everything that I promised to do for you. His real struggle is with God. And I think there's a real sense in which he can't possibly face Esau. He can't possibly be reconciled to his brother if that's what's going to happen. I'm trying not to give spoilers here. Um, he can't possibly face Esau 
until he has met God face to face and struggled with him and struggled with these, with these promises. Um, in some ways, this story encapsulates, this is, this is the reason that we pass the peace of Christ after we do confession of sin and after we hear absolution, after we hear forgiveness. It's, it's because we have been justified by faith. It's because we have peace with God. For that reason, we can have peace with each other. God is being really merciful to Jacob here in, in getting the order of these things, in coming and reconciling himself to Jacob and getting that relationship straightened out before Jacob faces the deception from all those years past uh, with, his, with his brother. Um, I wonder if you can identify with that at all. I wonder if you can identify at all with the sense of being in the middle of a struggle on, a, on the horizontal plane, right? Struggle with someone in your family or with a coworker or with your career or with your family, um, maybe one of your neighbors. How often are we able to dive headlong into those struggles and distract ourselves with those and ignore the fact that the real struggle is with God, that the real struggle is with the God who made us, the God who put us where we are, the God who has called us into the life, the career, the family, the neighborhood um, that, he, that he has called us? How often do we struggle to lift our head above the day-to-day to look up and ask the real question? Do we believe his promises to us? Do we believe that he actually sees us, that he knows what's happening in our lives, and that he will be faithful uh, to see us through? The danger, of course, is that we have so many of these struggles, often many at the same time, strung back to back, that we can live most of our lives um, functionally as if there is no God, as if we don't have to struggle with him, as if we don't have to encounter him and really deal with who he is at all. Um, we can keep ourselves distracted with the horizontal struggles for a long, long time. Um, there's a quote in one of Arthur Miller's plays that I think gets at this and gets at the despair that underlies it. So this is from his play, After the Fall. One of the characters says, you know, more and more I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart, and then what a good lover, then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all now, I see there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, another way of saying despair. The mercy of God is on display in this text in that he's making it very clear to Jacob that the bench is not empty, that the real struggle is with God, and that he's not going to allow Jacob to pass by it. And the first sign of progress that we see in Jacob's life is that for the first time, for the first time recorded in this entire story, 
he actually turns and speaks to God. In verse 9, this is the first time that Jacob has prayed. He's at the end of his rope. He's desperate. Remember, he's conceding half of his possessions. We saw last week that in a moment of righteous anger, uh, he was able to vent for a long time about all of the ways that he had been wronged and all the things that he had earned. Now look at what he says. It's the exact opposite, right? He knows he really has no standing. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. It's amazing. Um, this prayer has the same structure as a lot of the the psalms, the, the penitential psalms, the psalms of repentance. Um, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful prayer. All he can ask for is deliverance. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And now here's the really important part. But you said, Jacob's still praying, you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob is praying God's own words back to him, praying back his own promises. Um, and this is a sign that even in this moment of despair for him, this moment of great fear, this moment when he knows that he has no standing, that he has nothing to claim on his own behalf, um, he has been fully prepared to receive. He's been fully prepared to finally rely and to depend on God for the deliverance that he's asking for. He's finally ready to depend on nothing but the promises that he remembers having heard and that he's now speaking back to God. This is a great model for prayer. This is a great model for how we should pray in similar moments of desperation like this. He is going to cling to God and his promises, literally, as we're going to see in just a second. And this brings us to the blessing. This is a weird scene, isn't it? God shows up as a man. In fact, he's never specifically identified as God. Jacob asks him, what's his name? And he kind of evades the question, why do you ask me my name? Um, but Jacob knows who he is by the end. It just says, a man. Again, this is kind of a connection back to chapter 28. Remember then it was this generic, Jacob came to a place, just some place. Listen to how abrupt this is. Jacob sends his family on ahead of him across the stream. And then at verse 24, it just says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Just that suddenly, that abruptly. He's just in it. And it's amazing to see how he will not let God go. Stop and think about the condescension of God in that moment, by the way. Um, this is God wrestling with a human. Um, think about the condescension of the God that allows himself to be wrestled with and struggled with and, and in some way put at a disadvantage where he's saying, let me go, and Jacob can actually say, I won't let you go. How, how is that even possible? 
How does that even work unless God is lowering himself, condescending to be put uh, into, that, into that position? Everything in this passage turns on Jacob finally saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob has heard the blessing before, right? He has already received a blessing. He has stolen a birthright, and he has deceived his way into a blessing. And in the back of their mind, there's always been that doubt. Maybe I just tricked my way into that. Maybe I just schemed into that. Is that real? Is God really going to make good on these promises? And now he's got the opportunity. He's got God. And he will not let go until he's sure of God's blessing. And in the end, that blessing is simply this. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I have been in his presence. The word face, by the way, is, is a key word throughout this entire passage. It, 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 was, it, was, it showed up earlier in ways that you might not have been able to hear. Um, in chapter 20, when he's sending those gifts on ahead of him, right? Um, the text said, uh, sorry, verse 20. Um, it says, he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Actually, literally what that says is, he thought, I may appease his face with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will lift up my face. That's the literal Hebrew uh, in, that, in that passage. Jacob is coming into this encounter worrying very much about the face-to-face -face encounter he's about to have with Esau. He's worried about his brother's face. The great blessing of this moment is this, that he's in God's presence, that somehow he has seen God face-to-face, -face, and yet his life has been delivered. And he has heard that God will bless him. I want to be sure we notice that there's nothing in this text that suggests that an encounter with God that gives Jacob, that would give us exactly what we need, that ends with blessing, uh, that ends with the deliverance of his life. There's nothing in this text that suggests that that's a pleasant experience. Uh, that it's particularly comfortable. In fact, everything is pushing the other way, right? Um, Jacob is alone. The sun is setting. It is dark. Um, and it's a wrestling match. It's an all-night wrestling match. Um, I was a wrestler in high school. Wrestling matches last six minutes because that's, that's all you can do. Um, it's almost inconceivable to think about wrestling with anybody all night long. No wonder he was limping. Um... Nothing about this suggests that it is an easy, pleasant, comfortable experience. And again, we can ask ourselves, can we identify with that? Can you identify with that? Could it be, are you in the midst of a struggle? Are you in the midst of something that's going on where what you need to do is to look up and see that God is in the midst of it with you? and ask for his blessing, and, and remind yourself of the promises that he's, that he's made, and pray those promises back to him. And yet even then, 
And yet even then, the work that he's going to do in your life might not be comfortable. It might not be pleasant. Could it be that he is at work in the midst of the struggle that you would rather avoid? If the layers of security in your life are being stripped away, could it be that God is inviting you to just take hold of him and him only, to seek his face? Psalm 27 is great for this. Psalm 27 at verse 7 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. C.S. Lewis one time said, if you're looking for a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I do not recommend Christianity. Um, because in some ways, what we all need is exactly what Jacob is receiving. We all need that, that preparation to rely on God's promises and God's promises alone. But it means having everything else stripped away. It means having our dependence on everything else stripped away. And there are times when the struggles and the suffering in our lives, evil, as though, evil though they are, and as much as they're a part of the brokenness and the way the world is not meant, the way the world is not the way it's meant to be, nevertheless, God is at work in them and through them for our good. By the end of this passage, Jacob is transformed. Uh, and not just transformed, but renamed. Um, this is how God actually responds to Jacob, asking for his blessing. He blesses him, and he changes his name. He says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Um, and have prevailed here doesn't necessarily mean and have won and have defeated God, it just means you've survived. You've come out the other side. Jacob himself marvels, right, that he's come face to face with God and has lived to tell the tale. You're not supposed to be able to do that. But I think the important thing about this name, there's two things. One, Jacob's former name indicated the way he related to everybody around him. He was the one who sought to trip people up. But this name is oriented towards his relationship with God. Albeit with the struggle with God. But he's been renamed and reoriented in a way that reminds him of his ongoing and permanent relationship to that God. But the fact that it's about the struggle is the other important thing about this name. Um, because it contains a promise. God is a God who has purposed to dwell with his people. He is a God who has said, not just to Jacob, but to all of his people, I will not leave you. I will dwell in the midst of you. I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've promised to do with you. And he's going to commit to that promise and make good on that commitment even when his people rebel, even when they turn against him, even when they struggle against him. And one day, that commitment is going to lead him to become a man again. 
to take flesh yet again. Uh, This time, not to engage in a wrestling match, but this time to dwell in the midst of his people, even as they struggle against him and rebel against him, and even as they put him on a cross and put him to death. He's going to come again as a man who will go into his own dark night of the soul, who will go alone, calling out to his father for blessing, but instead receiving our curse, the curse that we were meant to receive. And it's for this reason he receives that curse so that you can receive the blessing, so that you can receive the name, so you can be renamed child of God, beloved, adopted. The last thing I want to point out before we close is that the transformation that has taken place in Jacob, we do need to understand it's a change that's taken place in Jacob. Jacob has been transformed. Jacob has been changed. Jacob has become, for the first time, a man of prayer and dependence. We're going to see how this plays out in the rest of his life. Nothing has changed in God. God is the same as he was before. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can say that even though he has changed Jacob's name to Israel, he's still the God who chose Jacob when Jacob was Jacob, when Jacob was a heel grabber. We know this because in the rest of the Old Testament, I looked this up, I thought maybe it was all the time. It turns out there are one or two times when he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Happens once or twice, mostly in Kings and, and, and in Chronicles. But almost everywhere in the rest of the Old Testament, when God tells his people who he is, he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Even though Jacob has been transformed, God reminds his people again and again, I chose you when you were running away from me. I chose you when you were a heel grabber. I chose you when you were deceptive. And I will not leave you. I will not let you go until I've done everything that I have promised to do for you. It's this God that draws us together each week. It's the coming of this God as that man that we are remembering at this time in the year. And it's this God who now spreads this feast for us in the wilderness. Before we come to this table as our first act of repentance, let's bow our heads one more time and let's pray.